Welcome to the All Out Coach Show. I'm joined today by a special guest who's going to help us understand how to explore our scientific curiosity, as well as our sportsmanship, which are the two qualities and characteristics that I talk about a lot at All Out Coach, because some of the most successful organizations that are able to grow quickly are the ones in which every single employee, every single member is or considers themselves a scientist and a sports athlete. Today, my guest is the director of the bladder cancer program at the renowned Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. He's also on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. He's on the genitourinary steering committee of the Southwest Oncology Group, as well as the National Cancer Institute's Bladder Cancer Task Force. And I've had the fortune of knowing him for a few years. And what struck me uh, in the first meeting, in addition to all his accolades and accomplishments and his cutting edge research, was his compassion and his generosity, which I admire in uh, a physician, uh, and which I think is instrumental in every physician, particularly in that physician-patient relationship. So uh, I'm very glad and truly honored to have you uh, be my guest today, uh, Dr. Sonpavde, Guru Sonpavde, everyone. Welcome to All Out Coach, Guru. Thanks, Tim, for the invitation and the kind words. I'm um, glad to be engaged with you on this program. Great. What were some of the episodes or who were some of the people that helped you determine your career path? Uh, and helped you manifest how you became the uh, director of the bladder cancer program at Dana-Farber. Uh, you know, back when I was in medical school, back in India, uh, where I did my medical school in a medical school called the CMC, Christian Medical College, Velour, uh, there was a big influence of uh, one of the people uh, who taught me there. And um, he inspired me, I think, to go into the line of uh, oncology and cancer uh, treatment as a career. Um, after I finished medical school, I came to the U.S. and um, um, pursued my career in internal medicine, followed by uh, oncology. And then from oncology, how I got into urologic oncology is, um, again, a little bit of the influence of the environment. I trained in Indiana University for my oncology fellowship, and there was a big urologic oncology influence. So I guess I felt just a little more comfortable doing urologic oncology. There also seemed to be more of a need for urologic oncology researchers. So that's kind of how I got into urologic oncology. I see. Were there particular coaches or mentors you had uh, that uh, you would like to recognize? Yeah, I think that is um, easy for me to say that at Indiana University, uh, there was a big impact of uh, uh, Larry Einhorn, uh, who is, of course, uh, world-renowned for management of testicular cancer, which he developed with his cisplatin-based uh, chemotherapy regimens, uh, which he developed uh, in a very rational manner. So I think that was a big impact. And I've had many mentors, uh, uh, honestly, you, you know, during my entire uh, career. In addition to that, I've had um, other people, Nick Vogelzang, um, Joachim Belmont. There are other people who have inspired me. Tony Chuari, who's the chief here 
at uh, Dana-Farber of uh, GU Oncology. I wanted to highlight the impressions that I had during our first introduction when a colleague of mine who had known you for many years had introduced me. You and I sat down for lunch the very first time we spoke, and you highlighted very quickly within a brief period of time all the amazing emerging research and treatments in this area of bladder cancer in which for some decades there hadn't been any novel treatments. But um, before we get to those, um, and, and, uh, and which you will probably highlight, I want to ask you about what your perspective is on the physician-patient relationship, and what you know, what y- what your approaches are to continuing to be personal in your relationships, whether it's with uh, medical affairs professionals such as myself or with patients, you know, and how has it changed throughout the years? Yeah, you know, I think in terms of uh, my own approach, I think it's actually not changed a lot. Uh, It's been a lot of shared decision making. You know, we discuss all the options with a patient. We -hmm. try to make them understand, you know, the biology of the disease and why we are doing A versus B, why we would recommend A versus B versus C. Mm -hmm. And and so that I think helps the patients uh, make a decision uh, and also um, be confident confident about a decision they make. Uh, I think that, you know, maybe there, there still are people and, and you know, it's, um, you know, in the long times, so in, in the past, it's been somewhat a more paternalistic approach to this in terms of recommending treatment A to the patient. Uh, and sometimes you end up actually doing that when some patients uh, want you to kind of... Um, help them make a decision, make a decision for them when they don't have strong feelings. So that does come into the picture sometimes. Um, Mm. But overall, I would say that uh, the dominant thought process is mutually, you know, it's a shared decision making Mm -hmm. uh, based on um, information given to the patient. I see. Do you think that the patients are now more educated than ever? Are they more demanding than ever because they can get a lot of information more readily than ever? And is that, does that present a challenge to you as a physician, an expert? It, it, it can be sometimes. I don't actually, actually, I, we, I admire patients who uh, are well-informed and come armed with information mm-hmm. and want to have a rational discussion about all the options available out there and all the emerging options, um, possibilities of clinical trials. Um, so I, I think that, such patients always lead to a kind of a longer, more thoughtful discussion, actually, when they come in armed with information. Um, however, there is also some information out there in the, on the internet and in the news media that can be misleading at times. Mm-hmm. Maybe there is some irrational enthusiasm about certain treatments. Um, and I'm not saying that these treatments don't work in some people, in some mm-hmm. patients, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, there can be some, uh, you know, enthusiasm for certain treatments based on uh, how a drug is being advertised in the media, for example. So, so those need to be countered with more a more rational and balanced discussion with patients. I really want to focus our discussion today on the role of innovative clinical research on the continuity of care, because as a pharmacist uh, myself. I always observed, uh, you know, how 
It is that patients changed their physicians, how they went from one hospital to another, how they changed insurance plans, and how the healthcare system either placed them at an advantage or, a dis- or at a disadvantage in terms of the continuity of care they, they received. How can you help patients get access to a lot of the new novel treatments that they have that I know you research and to make sure that they're, they actually are involved in the best trials uh, for them and then afterwards receive those treatments? That's a great question, Tim. And I, you know, we always try to bring the most cutting edge trials to patients, mm-hmm. the exciting, promising drugs out there um, that we would like to make them available to patients. We try to bring these to patients. It's not always possible to bring every exciting drug to a patient at a yeah. specific institution. So yeah. it's because just because of the, um, you know, the issue of competing trials out there. So we can't have, for example, three trials for the same patient population mm-hmm. in, uh, you know, in one institution. So sometimes it does turn out that patients have to go to other institutions seeking the best trial that's the best fit for them. But, um, but having said that, we do try to get the most exciting drugs to our patients at our institution. Uh, in terms of patients seeking you know, second opinions and going to other programs, that happens and we accept that as a, you know, it's, it's just like uh, you and I, when we wanna buy a car, we may go you know, try out four or five different cars or before we pick one. So it's kind of like that. So it's all part of the, I think the process of uh, patients seeing um, where they find the best management for them. Uh, there, there is sometimes a patient-doctor connect that patients and doctors mutually feel with certain people and maybe not with others. There's always you know, a certain math that works sometimes. So I think that it's reasonable to, for patients to, of course, seek the, what they think is best for them. Mm-hmm. I imagine you have many memorable stories of uh, how you have transformed the lives of patients uh, with the cutting-edge research that you do. Are there some that you can share in terms of the effect of some of these treatments on the patients, as many of them may be listening and maybe considering Dana-Farber? Um, yeah, I think that there are always, um, there are some stories for sure, like, you know, I could share with you. Maybe one that sticks out is um, a, a patient that really we thought was terminal, had progressed through three different types of treatment for metastatic bladder cancer. Uh-huh. And um, we offered an immunotherapy trial that was combining uh, you know, a novel immunotherapy drug with an existing immunotherapy drug. And uh, really um, the chances of a great response were are, you know, actually low in a phase one trial, which this was. Phase one trials are testing brand new drugs um, first time in human beings. So in kind of trials like that, there's always a promise, but there is not a uh, response rate that we can quote to patients that the, you know, the patients can expect. So uh, this patient just sticks out for me because we really thought this patient uh, was not going to make it beyond a few weeks or a few months. But the patient, I'm happy to tell you, uh, after having been on this trial, is uh, still alive and in a uh, complete remission two years out, believe it or not. Yeah. So, you know, we do change the lives of uh, patients with some of these exciting novel agents. Um, uh, however, uh, I don't want to again create uh, an irrational enthusiasm uh, for or a specific drug. And I don't want to mm-hmm. mention the drug exactly that we use mm-hmm. in this patient. 
but I suffice it to say that I think clinical trials are a great way to go uh, because in most patients, uh, the current treatments don't cure them. So trials looking at promising new drugs, new combinations uh, really are a great way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The healthcare system, the way it's designed currently, all the stakeholders, do you think that it gives clinicians uh, enough opportunities or enough time in order to ask the right questions, in order to really investigate the root causes of particular symptoms or the history of patients? Uh, because that's something that patients, I know I hear that from a lot of patients that you know, and I'm coming back, I guess, to that patient-doctor relationship, but I want to uh, ask what your opinion is on in terms of the day-to-day uh, restrictions that physicians may feel or obligations, you know, where if, if they're not, let's say, in an academic center, if they're in the community somewhere and they have to see, let's say, I don't know, 15, 20 patients or many more patients a day, do, do, do they... Uh, do they prioritize uh, to, you know, or do, are they conditioned to, or to, in order to investigate, you know, the best tr- course of treatment for that patient? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Tim. Uh, you know, I, uh, I have been in practice around 20 years now. Mm-hmm. So for the first 10 years of my career, we really did not have the electronic medical record system. And for the, you know, the next, next 10 years, I did have the electronic medical record system. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that there are pros and cons of the EMR system. And one of the things um, that, you know, is a negative is that when uh, we're talking to the patient, it just takes a lot longer to enter data into the EMR. Now, yeah. I think that some of the younger folks who are more, um, you know, savvy with the electronic uh, things, uh, you know, the setup in the EMR might be faster, but um, it, it, it does, in my experience, uh, work slower in terms of time investment in getting through the electronic medical record system, documenting things and putting in the orders. It, it takes a whole lot longer than it used to. And one of the things that I hope will develop is some kind of uh, AI system that can capture the conversation between the doctor and the patient in the room and mm-hmm. kind of tr- and transcribe that and you know into the EMR. I think mm-hmm. that would be a great advance. And I know there are people working on it in the high tech arena, and I hope that happens sooner than later. I see. Uh, because honestly, the EMR system, in terms of um, the time it takes, it does tend to uh, be a little bit of a barrier between uh, the patient, physician, patient and physician in terms of the interaction. Yes. So, mm-hmm. um, because there's just so many hours in a day. So, um, so I think that would be a big benefit of having a, a system where the conversation is captured to uh, and transcribed into the, not only the note, but also mm-hmm. captured into the ordering system, into the EMR. That would be a great uh, benefit. Yeah. Um, g- great. So I'd like to transition then, since you've uh, alluded to some innovative solutions uh, for healthcare system, Back to medicine and back to bladder cancer. If you could uh, give us a summary, you know, of some of the emerging treatments or research that you are most excited about now, I think that would be helpful for the listeners um, who may be considering them. Yeah, thanks, Tim. So, as you know, my area is bladder cancer research. I'm a medical oncologist, 
So we investigate uh, new drugs uh, in clinical trials. And uh, we also study the tumor tissue to study new therapeutic targets in uh, translational research. So in terms of clinical trials, there's been a lot of movement in terms of uh, agents out there. We've always had platinum-based chemotherapy Mm -hmm. um, for 20, 30 years and longer. Um, Of course, we now have immunotherapy with immune checkpoint inhibitors, as we call them. Uh, These drugs unleash the T cells, the immune cells of the body to fight the cancer. There's a PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors Mm -hmm. um, that are out there for treating patients who are progressing post-platinum-based chemotherapy. And a couple of them are also approved in the first line setting for metastatic disease if you have a high PDL1 protein level, uh, or if you're not eligible for chemo, then it's el- then you can do these drugs as first line. We now also have the advent of uh, uh, drugs called antibody drug conjugates, uh-huh. uh, which are essentially a smart way of giving chemotherapy. So these are targeting certain proteins on the cancer cell, and these antibodies are conjugated with a strong chemotherapy. So that's why they're called antibody drug conjugates. So it's a smart way of delivering strong chemotherapy to the cancer cell in a more specific manner. So you have, you have less toxicities of free-floating chemotherapy in the blood. So mm-hmm. there's a couple of drugs out there now, Enfortumab, Vedotin, Sacitizumab, Govitecan. So two drugs that are in this ADC, antibody drug conjugate class. Mm-hmm. There's also the targeted drug called eridafitinib, which is an FGFR inhibitor. Right. It only works in around 20% of patients who have a mutation in the FGFR3 or 2 gene uh, in the cancer cell. So um, again, all of these drugs have provided an advance, help people live longer, but they're not going to cure patients, at least not cure most patients. You think maybe a small minority of patients might be cured Mm -hmm. with immunotherapy, but we don't know that for sure. We still need some longer follow-up. Now what's going on is... um, exciting um, trials of other new immunotherapy drugs or combinations of these drugs. For example, combining enfortumab, vedotin, the antibody drug conjugate with an immunotherapy drug uh, looks very promising in early studies. So that's being looked at. Also combining two immunotherapy drugs like nivolumab and apilimumab looks promising preliminarily. So that's being looked at in a big phase three trial. So I think that the results of these future data that will come out from these trials might change the standard of care once again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. Are there any particular um, new areas uh, that are of research that you you feel are untapped yet? Or are we, or I can rephrase that question to, do you feel that the research in bladder cancer that's funded and that's most prioritized actually addresses uh, those that are in in most need for new treatments? Or do you think there are other areas? I think there are other areas. So the the key really is, I don't think we still understand fully the biology Mm -hmm. of bladder cancer. Mm -hmm. That's why we've been unable to cure most patients. And so the study of tumor tissue, not only tumor tissue, but the host, the patient, uh, the genes in the patient uh, himself or herself, the germline factors, the host factors, tumor factors, both need to be studied in more detail at more depth to understand um, the right drug or the right combination of drugs 
for the right patient. So that's precision medicine. So there's a lot that needs to be done with precision medicine. We still don't know the optimum patient that will uh, benefit from cisplatin chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. We actually don't have a great uh, way of saying who's going to benefit the most from immunotherapy. And even more importantly, we don't know a way of saying the group of patients that will not benefit at all from immunotherapy or chemotherapy, because those are the patients who really have the greatest need for a new drug. And so mm-hmm. we really need to try to identify biomarkers, not just that predict response, but that predict progression, like very persistent disease. So we can really focus on them with brand new drugs. I see. And uh, some of these new modified approaches may uh, require combination treatments in order to help uh, express, maximize the effect or the benefit of another class of medications. Uh, right. right. Yeah, that, that's right. That's mm-hmm. right. We don't think that a single drug is going to be able to cure patients. Occasionally, mm-hmm. we might get, get lucky, like mm-hmm. single immunotherapy drug, like a PD-1 inhibitor, um, might cure some patients. We still need to wait for longer follow-up. Now, we have seen uh, durable complete remissions, yeah. which might be cures in some patients. But for the vast majority, this is a heterogeneous disease. It's driven by various pathways and various molecules. So likely that we will need combinations to cure most patients. Mm-hmm. In terms of the screening, uh, Dr. Sampavde, you know, uh, there's various different w- ways to screen. Some are invasive, others are more non-invasive. Uh, what, what is your opinion on the liquid biopsy, you know, molecular you know, testing versus, let's say, the other kind of more invasive means of testing? Uh, and, then, and then also ra- radiology. Where does radiological findings fit into the screening and, you know, and, and even treating some patients, right, for some of the yes. different conditions yes. within lab? Yeah. Yes, so non-invasive testing is really may, uh, making progress. And I think mm-hmm. will um, fulfill a huge uh, uh, demand, actually. Mm-hmm. So circulating tumor DNA or CT DNA mm-hmm. uh, looks very promising. Um, yeah, I, I, actually, in bladder cancer, there's, uh, there is a lot of shedding of DNA from the tumor. So bladder mm-hmm. cancer is one of those cancers where uh, 90% of patients will have some circulating tumor DNA. And this is in metastatic disease patients. In earlier disease, like non-metastatic disease, there is a lower chance of finding uh, CT DNA in the blood. But where it's been um, uh, studied, a, a different format has been, has been studied in non-metastatic disease using CT DNA to detect minimal residual disease, so MRD for short. So for example, patients who had a radical cystectomy, the bladder has been removed for muscle invasive aggressive bladder cancer the cancer is still looking localized. So we want to give these patients adjuvant or post-operative chemotherapy or immunotherapy. But do we really know uh, the patients, can we detect patients who are destined to relapse uh, versus the patients who don't have any microscopic disease elsewhere and are not going to relapse? So now we might be getting closer to that goal because one study that uh, looked at it and showed that CT DNA mm-hmm. um, the presence of CTDNA predicted recurrence uh, quite well, actually. And, and, even, and in those patients, adjuvant immunotherapy seemed to improve outcomes in this trial. So this was a retrospective analysis. So this is still being looked at prospectively. Mm-hmm. But so far, it looks promising that 
minimal residual molecular evidence of disease could be detected using ctDNA. So there's two ways of uh, ctDNA being helpful. One, to see the alterations in the tumor mm -hmm. uh, using ctDNA profiling from blood. Uh -huh. And secondly, to detect minimal residual disease by detecting the presence of the DNA from the tumor in the blood um, when the scans don't show it. So it's showing you molecular disease. Yeah, okay. Uh, and are uh, so is are our patients now expecting um, easier screening, testing, and longer survival? Like just uh, for the lack of better terms, just uh, how, how has the prognosis of bladder cancer and different forms of it improved as a result of the cutting edge research? So ctDNA profiling is still in its infancy. Mm -hmm. And I think you also asked about scans. So um, yeah. in terms of scans, we still don't have perfect way of telling, telling the true extent of the cancer in the bladder um, in terms of how deep the cancer is. The MRI might be better than CAT scanning. There are multi-parametric MRIs coming on board, mm -hmm. uh, but we still have a ways to go. So one of the ways of uh, detecting tumor recurring in the bladder might be um, DNA in the urine, not blood, but the urine. So right. urine cell-free DNA is mm -hmm. also making some progress in terms of early studies to uh, help us detect cancer recurrence earlier in the bladder. So I think that in the, with the combination of this molecular DNA studies using non-invasive urine or blood samples, uh, and the combination with the better scanning MRI and maybe other better technologies that might come on board, mm -hmm. I think we should be able to get much better at staging uh, bladder cancer. Great. Uh, so that's very promising to hear. Do you currently spend most of your time in research or do you also uh, see patients in, uh, clinically as well? It's a 50-50 mix, Tim. So I spend I half my time in the clinic seeing patients. And of course, we offer clinical trials to patients in the clinic. Uh -huh. The other half is spent with uh, research work, um, writing grants or writing um, concepts to mm -hmm. study tumor tissue. We have grants to study tumor tissue from metastatic bladder cancer patients. Most of the molecular you know, DNA analysis of these tumors has been done in patients um, before they were treated, not after. So we were, we were really keen on analyzing tumor tissue, cancer cells, mm -hmm. after progression, uh, after all these, all these previous treatments like platinum-based chemotherapy or immunotherapy, mm -hmm. so after all these drugs, uh, the tumor might change its character, might have different molecules driving it. So we really wanted to study that. So we really focus right now on studying the mechanisms of resistance to treatment by mm -hmm. studying, specifically studying tumor tissue that was harvested on a biopsy after progression on all these treatments. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, the recurrence rate is, is quite high in bladder cancer, right? So that presents an important challenge as well, right? Uh, That's right. That's right. So yeah. muscle invasive bladder cancer, even yeah. after you take the bladder out, do a radical cystectomy, right. about half the time it does recur. Mm -hmm. um, and metastatic bladder cancer, once it's spread on the scans, radiologically right. spread, that's usually not curable. Uh, okay, rarely it is in a proportion of patients. 
So um, those patients have the, have the biggest unmet needs. So now I'd like to shift gears a little bit about to the pharmaceutical industry and your relationship with with pharma industry because I've known throughout my career uh, quite a you know a lot of academic uh, experts and scientific experts, scientists, physician researchers like yourselves, who did not always work as closely with the pharmaceutical industry. Yet, I, I don't think that, you, I, I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't describe you as, to fall within that group because I feel that you are a, a critical thinker, a forward thinker who's open mind, who has, who has a very open-minded and uh, who's driven by innovation. And one of that, those means is through partnerships, important partnerships with the pharmaceutical industry. The medical division you know, and the medical division of the pharmaceutical industry, the research, R&D and medical, uh, how can they improve the, the research that is actually reaching the clinics and reaching the patients in order to predict the patient outcomes, in order to anchor the research in the labs, in the investigational setting to actual clinical outcomes that matter to the patients? Uh, that's something that I'm curious about to hear from you. That's a challenging question to answer, Tim, because, yeah. the, you know, pharmaceutical industry, of course, has a slightly different focus than probably an academic um, researcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, I think that they complement each other. They fulfill different roles. And I would um, say that the Generally, the engagement between pharma and academic researchers has been good. Um, can it be better? Yeah, I think it can be better. Uh, I think both pharma and academicians need to listen more to each other and understand each other's needs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that some of the uh, unmet needs and we have differing opinions, as you know, and an a researcher from institution B may have a different opinion from uh, my opinion, let's say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so there might be five different opinions coming at pharma. And so at the end of the day, it, 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 is, it, it could be a tough decision actually for pharma to make in terms of should they develop dr- their drug in situation A or situation B or C. Yeah. So I think that it boils down to a lot of these uh, are sometimes... Uh, business-oriented decisions and not necessarily a scientific decision. Right. Um, just looking at the uh, landscape of who else is developing what in what space. So I understand how that goes. So, But I think that um, overall, I'm, I would say I'm reasonably satisfied with <laughs> interactions between pharma and myself. And uh, uh, we all should always continue to strive to improve that relationship, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah. If you could uh, teach patients one detail or a different, let's say, perspective about, you know, research and how they get access to it, what would you share with them? You know, what would you share with them with, that you think would, uh, you, you know, help them have better expectations, more accurate expectations of, from the products, from the, you know, agents they take uh, or the research uh, studies they're involved in? Is there, is there some, some message to the patients as well? I think that the key message is that clinical trials are a standard of care. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's out there is some patients believe getting on a research trial means there's some kind of a lab rat 
or they right. might get placebo. They have a yeah. preconceived notion that there might be a placebo uh, and, you know, I will never get the right treatment. You know, that kind of notion is out there. Uh, I do want to dispel that, you know, research uh, um, is, is, is a standard of care and sometimes, uh, actually many times, is better than standard of care. Uh, you get closer monitoring. Um, and however, I will say that sometimes research is not the right way to go also. So there might be a patient that uh, potentially cannot wait a couple of weeks to get some of these study procedures uh, done in this in the screening process that, that it takes mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. Uh, lead, leading up to starting therapy on a trial. Yeah. I, I admit that there are some patients like that that are progressing so fast that, that they really can wait two weeks. That happens, that happens. But in, in general, barring a patient like that um, or a patient where biologically we feel that uh, treatment A is clearly probably better than a research, uh, a treatment on a research. Barring specific situations where mm-hmm. we feel strongly uh, I would I would highly encourage patients uh, enrolling on a trial, which I think is uh, I should be considered a standard of care. Thank you. Those are important points uh, for for our listeners. The generation of data, you know, and how quickly we generate data in terms of real world evidence. There's many registries. Are we improving in terms of in in the transparency of the clinical trial data and in the speed, I, I, in the time efficiency? Uh, of actually communicating that data so that we can react and act upon it a little bit more quickly. Um, choose the right patient populations in which to, in whom to consider uh, patients based on these new results. Are we seeing the results as quickly as you want to see? Uh, do you see any improvement in that over the last few years? Last few years? Uh, I think we've seen some improvement in, in that uh situation in the past few years, the data seem to be coming out reasonably quickly. Um, the data are out there and even the FDA approvals, the regulatory process seems mm-hmm. a little more efficient than I remember many years ago. So I do think it's the system is more efficient. Yeah. Um, uh, one, one thing I probably should have mentioned, but I'll mention it now is uh, one of the things uh, that is, uh, the, is about these trials is that Trials provide a data set to analyze and mine retrospectively for nuggets of data that are missed in the initial presentation. And mm-hmm. sometimes it is that you have to combine multiple trials, which may have been conducted by different companies to, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, generate these hypothesis generating data or new discoveries. Yeah. So that's where I think industry, uh, I see is hesitant to uh, collaborate with other, other you know, company. Pharma is not collaborating as well with each other. I would say, mm-hmm. in terms of combining data, um, or even analyzing retrospectively more aggressively, I think yeah. that's where we could make uh, more progress in terms of collaborating between pharma companies. And I don't see that happening as much as I'd like it to. And that would yeah. be, I think, I agree uh, with that. that. Help us yeah. make more advances even faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very important point that I agree with wholeheartedly, Dr. Sampavde. Uh, although I do see some some of the companies starting to make some you know headway in that direction. Uh, 
I heard of uh, I heard of a new initiative that Beringer Ingelheim had started uh, a few years ago, where they invested their staff, their time into an initiative that trained other company, other pharmaceutical companies on uh, conducting clinical trials. Uh, and I think it was it, it was a win-win approach from their standpoint, and they. Uh, launched this initiative uh, via social media out of all places, via LinkedIn, via LinkedIn Live. Uh, and it had thousands of people who, uh, who attended. I was one of them. But it was an, the initiative was memorable. It sticks out in my mind because it, uh, I think, takes advantage of all of that research and all those new promising agents and, and making sure that the studies are conducted in the most the best quality way because a lot of the these smaller companies then are merge they merge together or they're acquired by larger companies so it's it only serves to the benefit of those larger companies and like Beringer and Ohio or like others in order to you know to, to improve the quality of research period. Uh, so, so I, I could not agree with, with you more uh, on, yeah, on that. Well, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Sampavde, for sharing your perspectives. Is there one new area of research or one uh, agent, let's say, that you're working on now or that you would like to share with others? Well, one interesting avenue of research I've been uh, focused on in addition to, you know, testing new drugs and uh, resistance mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also interested in repurposing drugs that are used for other conditions. For example, drug use for diabetes, metformin um, uh, has looked interesting. I specifically, in my case, I have been interested in uh, developing angiotensin uh, converting enzyme inhibitors, angiotensin yes. pathway inhibitors like mm-hmm. uh, ACE inhibitors or mm-hmm. angiotensin receptor blockers. There yeah. is a lot used of used for blood pressure, right? Exactly, right. They used to treat blood pressure. And so there is a lot of data that Dr. Rakesh Jain at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital has generated with uh, showing how these drugs can increase uh, perfusion um, to tumors, improving drug delivery and reducing interstitial pressure and also enhancing the immune state in the microenvironment. So uh, we have some very interesting data and uh, we are trying to develop these in the clinic uh, because one of the uh, advantages of a drug like this is these drugs are widely available globally, they're cheap. So they really, drugs like this can sometimes have a more global and wide impact than a, a new drug coming out of the lab, which tends to be a very expensive for most of the world. So we're really yeah. keen on developing um, uh, this avenue of repurposing drugs uh, in general, and right now specifically the angiotensin inhibitors. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I wish you lots of luck with that, and I thank you on behalf of uh, uh, the healthcare professional community and the patients uh, as well for all of the amazing work that you're doing. Uh, so thank you very much, and uh, I look forward to the next time we speak. Thank you, Tim. I look forward to it.